Our Father, we have indeed gathered for the purpose of worship, and yet even that has grown confusing to us. We're not exactly sure what's expected of us. Have we come because the church needs our money? Have we come because our, our consciences are quieted if we don't? Father, um, we've come because you have made us into worshiping creatures. You have uh, set us apart as a kingdom of priests, and we are a people who have been made to fix our attention on the God of all grace and glory. And so we pray that as we gather this morning, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will enable us to worship aright. We have not come to be spectators and to pass judgment on, on the preaching or the singing. We've come, O oh God, to be performers. We are here to perform before the grand celestial audience of one. And we pray that, the, that you will be pleased with our performance. We are here, O oh God to be prompted by the word so that our worship will be of spirit and truth. We pray that at the end there will be pleasure in heaven as a result of what is found here. Father, we head to this table in a few minutes, and it is the very reminder of the cornerstone of our faith. Ready us for that. Lord, we um, do love our country. We thank you that she has such wonderful historical moorings in the Christian faith. And she has been a blessing to the world as a result of her Christian moorings. And yet now, in many ways, she has become a curse. We are exporting immorality. We are exporting all kinds of flesh, O God. And I pray that you'll have mercy on us, on our land. I pray that you will raise up the church of Jesus Christ to be a clarion voice, to call to, to this country to be restored to the God of our fathers. And I pray, Lord, that you will grant us the kind of boldness that is necessary to speak into a culture that thinks any truth claim is irrational. Now, Father, take our monies and use them to advance the cause of Christ. We, uh, we exist for that, to reach men with the saving message of Christ Jesus. We pray, of course, in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, one other I want you to meet. In fact, um, uh, this is, uh, are you around, Gabor? Where are you? There you are. Come on down here. Um, uh, this is, remember, I went to Hungary because of an invitation from a Hungarian to go to this YTL thing. Well, this is he. This is uh, Gabor Grace. Um, he took his last name to name himself after our church. That's just a joke. Uh, this is Gabor Grace. And Gabor, we only got 90 seconds, so I want you to tell them just briefly, what is YTL? Well, YTL is a, is a program. It's a program that uh, for educators to use to teach young people how to avoid AIDS and drug abuse and uh, how to build their character and values. And we have uh, Educator Symposium. It's a, it's a biblical-based program, and we share the gospel through them. Uh, in 10 years, about 7,000 non-Christian came, uh, came to our Symposium. I was there in March, and there were how many uh, uh, Hungarian educators at that symposium? 800. 
for a whole weekend. And so you were addressing issues like AIDS and drugs and at the, at the night, what, what took place? And on Saturday night, we come from these felonies that they face and through that, we got to the point where we were going to be able to share the gospel through a personal testimony with a prayer with me and a common card. And who's giving that testimony? It's me. <laughs> I was there for that, ladies and gentlemen, and to uh, see 800 Hungarian educators in a room uh, who are exposed to some real uh, principled values, and then, at the end of the day, to hear the gospel so clearly presented. And the government of Hungary is paying for part of it. That's the marvelous thing. This is Gabor Grace, and he'll be speaking at Richard Hall's class right now. Gabor, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Good to have you. Now, I hope you're at uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the first 10 verses of a, a, a passage which is pivotal in, in all of redemptive history. Of course, it is the record of the historical fall. You follow as I read the first 10 verses. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were, they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Most of you know that last week I introduced a summertime, summer-long series on the, on the subject, the topic of self-esteem. You might recall that what I said was uh, the social sciences had hoped that they had found the solution for many of our social ills such as um, school dropout rates and drug use and uh, um, uh, out-of-wedlock pregnancies and uh, all kinds of... They were hoping that the emphasis upon self-esteem would be the solution to all of these social ills. Unfortunately, the research of late is demonstrating that that's not the case and that uh, we're in a bigger mess now than we have ever been. You might remember that I told you the story about um, uh, in 1997 in the city of Boston, they were trying to cancel the spelling bee and Little League Baseball because people cried when they misspelled words and struck out. Then I told you the story about the woman whose mother told her, never come to my office because you embarrass me because you're so ugly. And I said then that what we try to do is, is um, uh, correct that mistaken notion by telling this young woman, no, 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 that's not right. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And uh, you might remember the, the, the point was, I'm saying that both ends of those spectrum 
are wrong. We don't do this, we don't do that. There's something else. You might recall I also told you about the woman that I saw in Chick-fil-A who was telling her son, Good boy, Johnny, you ate your chicken nuggets. And that was my last straw when I finally realized I had to do something about that or speak some kind of word. So here we are. Uh, That's what we discussed last week. Let's go forward. I think one of the, the most shocking discoveries that I've ever made as an adult was the discovery that I am not the center of the universe. I want to be, and I'm told that it's a good thing to be, and my culture encourages me to be the center of the universe. And by the way, you're told the same thing, but we're not. We're not the center of the universe, ladies and gentlemen. I don't think it comes in as a surprise that, that um, self-consciousness, our, our culture is sated with self-consciousness. In the last 50 years, ladies and gentlemen, pride, pride has really come into its own. I mean, uh, there was the day when pride was considered a vice, but not anymore. We've, uh, we've removed it from the, uh, from the vice column, and we've put it over to the virtue column. Gang, um, it runs rampant among our culture and has produced a mass of people committed to themselves, many of which are either speaking or sitting in this room. Gang, historically, virtually every chapter of human history other than our own has denounced pride as a societal bad. But yet we moderns, we have removed the stigma and declared it to be a consummate good. Folks, um, somewhat predictably, that emphasis has found its way into the church. And that's where I get concerned. I can understand the culture making the emphasis. What I can't understand is why we make it. And the Bible is used to support such a position, and it has produced all kinds of confusion, which we'll discuss in a minute. John Piper, one of uh, my heroes, says, Today the first commandment is, Thou shalt love thyself. Bob Schuler, a name that some of you might know, sent me this book years ago. Um, the title, of course, if you can't see it back there, is Self-Esteem. Um, Bob Schuler suggests that the explanation for about every interpersonal problem, any interpersonal issue that we've got, can be found uh, in either one's, one's wrongful self-esteem. He calls self-esteem our, our, uh, our emotional birthright. Guys, um, I, I want to quote from this book. It's really hard to believe that statements like these could be made uh, in the Christian church, but all four of these come out of this book. And, and if you'd like to see them, I'll show you in between services. But here are four statements, actually three of these statements come out of the book. One comes out of a magazine article. Here's one of the statements. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's what sin is. How about this one? A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Really? 
Third, I contend that this unfulfilled need for self-esteem underlies every human act, both negative and positive. Here's probably the worst. People who don't love themselves can't believe in God. John Stott said, there is a chorus of many voices and it's all chanting in unison that I must, at all costs, love myself. You know, we sing a song. Um, we sing it here. It goes like this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for... You know what the next words are? It's a rare congregation, ladies and gentlemen, that does not stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote that. Wrote that and here's how, he, here's how he wrote it. Would he devote that sacred head... For such a worm as I. That's how he wrote it. But in our hymnals, they've changed the words. Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? Who would ever dream of calling ourselves a worm? That's worm theology. And it's got to be done away with. You know, guys, um... John Stott, one of, the, uh, one of the good guys, says there's a new cross in evangelicalism today. The old cross slew men. The new one entertains them. The old cross condemns men and the new one assures them. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new one encourages it. Now, gang, I say all of that by way of... Um, of introduction, um, because I want you to know one of my motivations for doing this summer-long series. Um, my, My motivation is something like this. It is as bad to say nothing than it is, as it is, of this self esteem emphasis that is being made all across the country and in the church of all places. You know, um, I don't have the option of saying nothing because other corners of the Christian church are sending out books. <laughs> saying nothing is as bad as is what's being said. And, and my concern is that Christians are getting in all sorts of trouble because of the confusion over this subject. For for example, I'm as guilty as anybody in this room of using all sorts of wrong standards for measuring my self-worth. All those external markers of self-worth. How about this? Here's a way to determine if you're valuable. How big is your church? Or if it's not a preacher, how about you? Uh, how good are your kids performing? Or how high-paying is your job? Gang, um, it is that private internal assessment of my own worth 
that is the subject of this series, that private, internal assessment of my own value, that is what we're talking about. Um, what, what do I think of myself? Um, what is the value of my life? Those aren't bad questions. It's the answers that are so danged awful. And so, guys, what we want to do now is, is go to the place which I would define as the origin of the confusion. And that's about all the time we've got for this morning is to, for me to point out a couple of things about where this all came from. And then we'll meet around the table. But what I want to talk to you about this morning briefly is the origin of this emphasis on self-esteem. The first mention of self-consciousness in the Bible is found in Genesis 3 that we read a few moments ago. It's really found in, in verses 7 through 11. Of course, this is a description of the historical fall. If you'll go back with me to Genesis 3, verses 6 and following, you will notice that they, um, she took, um, she also gave to her husband, um, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Gang, the first recorded consequence of sin is that their eyes were opened. Uh, that's the key. Their eyes were opened. And it is, um, it is what follows their open eyes that is such a concern. Their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. It is not a matter here of them becoming naked. They were naked before this event. But it was now that they perceived that they were naked. They were naked before, but it was, it was of no concern to them. But once sin enters, they immediately become aware of themselves. There, there was a self-awareness, that, and, and a pretty negative one at that, by the way. But there was a self-awareness that begins, that had never been known before, that came about as the result of the entrance of sin. Gang, what was uh, the immediate result of their self-awareness? I was afraid, and I hid myself. Gang, the first fear that man ever knew was directly tied to an enlarged self-awareness. The first defense mechanism that was ever employed is a direct result of an enlarged self-awareness. What did this first couple enjoy that they now had lost? It was prior to the fall that they were not aware of their nakedness in the sense that they were not self-conscious about it. But their attention, as the result of sin, had been drawn now to themselves. Prior to the entrance of sin, 
They were very God-conscious, very aware that they were in a created order that he had entrusted to them. They They were aware of one another. And as a result of that focus, there was no need to respond in fear or defensiveness or to try and figure out their own value. But once sin enters... The whole focus changes. My eyes were opened. And I'm naked. Weren't you naked before? Yeah, but, you know, I, I never noticed it before. Prior to sin, their focus was on the Lord God who made them and fellowship with them. Sin enters... And the focus changes. They are now self-aware. So, gang, do you see the treadmill that's been produced by sin? We, uh, we sin, and that creates guilt, which uh, results in self-consciousness which leads to a self-centeredness that produces barriers between us and God and me and my wife or me and Eve. And then there's more sin and there's more guilt and there's more self-consciousness and there's more self-centeredness and then there's more barriers. And it spins and spins and spins and spins to the place that a man who stands behind a pivot would tell you that you're in hell when you don't have self-esteem. Guys, if I could put our current situation in, in the language of Genesis 3, here's what I would say. I would say this. Our efforts to build our self-esteem is the 21st century's equivalent of Adam and Eve's efforts to cover themselves with fig leaves. So get to stitching, brother and sister. Get yourself a fig leaf of a high-paying job and stitch that sucker to good-performing kids and find yourself one other fig leaf of... Um, of uh, uh, Group affirmation. Stitch it all together, ladies and gentlemen. Try to get some sense of worth. Tell me something. Is it working? Your efforts to to piece together this quilt of self-worth, is it working? Francis Schaeffer um, wrote a book years ago entitled Genesis, Space and Time. And in that book, he says that there, as a result of sin, there were four separations that occurred as a result of the entrance of sin. Four separations. First separation was separation between God and man. We all know that. In Isaiah 59, 2, your sin separates you from God. The second separation was between uh, man and other men. 
Uh, that's certainly true. All of the conflicts and the wars and the divorces and all that business. Um, uh, sin comes and creates a separation between me and God, between me and my fellow man. Then the third separation was a separation between me and the planet. That is, uh, you know, all the ecological problems we got and, and um, the lion still does eat the lamb, you know, and, and the bird's afraid of people. And, and all of the, the, as a result of sin, there was a separation between man and his planet. So as a result of sin, ladies and gentlemen, there was a separation between man and God, between man and other men, and man and his planet. The fourth one was, the fourth separation was as a result of sin, there was a separation between man and himself. Our sense of shame, our, our sense of inward nakedness. Is deeper than it's ever been before. We're no longer comfortable with who we are. And thus the mad scramble to artificially construct some kind of image that will allow me to live with myself. Gang, the emphasis upon self-esteem is not helping. Because the focus is so wrong. It is so Wrong. What I'm saying is that our pursuit of self-esteem is an illegitimate attempt on our parts caused by sin to put together a sense of worth that will allow us to live with ourselves. I am not saying that we don't have worth. Oh, no, far from it. But my worth is not to be found. In some synthetic self-esteem. Guys, um, tell me this. Is telling little Johnny that he's a fine lad because he ate his chicken strips at Chick-fil-A, do you think that's helping? I don't. I think it's hurting. And I know your intentions are good. I know your motivations might be good. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not helping. It's hurting us. You know, I had a parent tell me that the students are really in the next hour. So I can't speak to the students, but I will in the next hour. But I had a parent tell me that every day, every day his daughter goes, he goes, goes to school. I mean, the daughter is out now. But every day the daughter goes to school and she is reminded of her worth. By where she is allowed to sit at the lunch table. You do know there's a pecking order at the lunch table, don't you folks? Don't you? Ask your kids about it. Do you know how many times I have people say to me, Have you noticed all those cars in your parking lot? (laughs) You notice what kind of cars those are? (laughs) I can't come to that church. No, all those people, they're driving those fancy cars. Ladies and gentlemen, that's pitiful. That is pitiful. We're doing ourselves damage. Because our focus is all out of whack. There's got to be a better way. There is.
I assure you, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not leave any uncertainty as to our worth. We're going to talk about it all summer. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will meet us now at this sacred desk, this table that um, has lying on it common elements, and yet they are set aside for a very sacred use. And I pray that your people will feed off of flesh and blood, that they would so appropriate the benefits of Christ's sufferings for us that we might find ourselves soaring spiritually as being, as, because we have been reminded of the beauty of Christ's sufferings for his people. Now, O oh God, meet us at this table. We come claiming no merit, only the merits of Christ's that are now ours by faith. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.